If I ask you to imagine a really big fire, what comes to your mind? Is it flames encapsulating a huge building, maybe an oil refinery, or maybe even a whole city? Is it a big part of a forest burning? Well, after today's episode, I hope I'll uh, help you widen this perspective and I uh, Together with my guest, Professor Guillaume Rain of Imperial College London, we're going to discuss a completely different threat, much bigger and much more treacherous, the smoldering pit fires. This kind of fires produce insane amounts of pollutants, are responsible for deadly haze episodes in southeastern Asia, and now occur all over the world, in, even in the Arctic Circle. Um, this type of combustion is very interesting and Guillermo is going to uncover the physics and chemistry of that. He's going to talk about the ways we can use to detect these fires and how his group has used some clever techniques to study them and model them. All of this was done within his ERC Consolidator grant, which we'll also mention in here. And yeah... Guillermo has also some great advice to young academics and to the whole field of fire science. So I, I hope there are people listening because this, uh, these advices are priceless. I must say I was really stressed before this interview because I have literally never interviewed a person in my life. And this first time I do, it's a distinguished professor from ICL. But yeah, it, I think it went quite well and Guillermo is super nice and uh, his science is astonishing. And I'm absolutely sure you will truly love this um, interview. And whatever your role is in the fire science or engineering, and even if you have never dealt with a smoldering fire in your life, I'm absolutely sure being exposed to this uh, new and fascinating world of combustion will will definitely be interesting and beneficial to you. Anyway, let's not prolong this anymore. Let's spin the intro and jump into the interview. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Fire Science Show. I'm here today with my first guest, Professor Guillermo Rain of Imperial College London. Guillermo, I'm really happy to have you here as my first guest. Hello, Boji. It's a joy and, a, and an honor to be invited to your podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, there's so many subjects we can speak on, uh, Guillermo. I mean, there's so much research topics we're touching together. And your group is, is doing amazing fire science in all ends of the fire science. But there's, there's one thing that I've asked you here for and I really want to hear about. And that's your ERC grant on, on haze fires. It's called Reducing the Burden of Smoldering Wildfires, an Earth-Scale Challenge. Can you tell the listeners a bit more about this subject? Yeah, so thank you for asking about this this grant, this ERC Consolidator grant. It has been and continues being very important in my academic career. Um, the topic of this grant is to, to study, to understand, to prevent and to fight smoldering wildfires. 
um, the smoldering is this um, typically ignored phase of combustion, which doesn't have a flame. Because it doesn't have a flame there, um, the human bias is to say, well, then it doesn't have a flame, it's not burning, who cares about it? Let's go and do something else. Uh, but these, these fires, these smoldering fires, are very persistent. They're very easy to ignite. They're very difficult to suppress. And they can last for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes centuries, uh, burning and consuming fuel and releasing heat and releasing uh, pollutants. Yeah, I, I must say I was on the ignorant side as well. Uh, when I've met you, for me, it was just the slow fires. And as we discussed it sometimes, the slow fires are not ex exciting. I mean, they're even difficult to observe because it's like uh, difficult to capture them. Thank God for the time-lapse uh, techniques. But then, then I've learned the burden on the whole planet these fires have. And that, that was something that completely uh, changed my perspective. You, you're absolutely right. Uh, smoldering doesn't have a flame because of the chemistry. The chemistry is what we call heterogeneous chemistry because it involves uh, reactants that are in the gas phase, oxygen, and in the solid phase, like the, the char or the carbon in the soil. And, and this chemical detail completely changes the behavior and completely changes the physics and the thermofluids and the energy release. So these fires are very slow. It's exactly what you're saying. I... I um, it makes me laugh because I always go around saying these are the largest fires on earth and it makes a point, uh, but you always tell me and it makes me laugh and you're absolutely right. These are also the slowest fires on earth. <laughs> they, they are not in a hurry, uh, but they're also very difficult to suppress. And, and that's the enigmatic and fascinating part of these fires. They are not exotic and no one cares about. It's quite the opposite. They are, they are so important in the natural environment and in the built environment. That is almost like the elephant in the room of, of fire signs very often. They've been ignored for a really long time and there is not one single good reason for them to be ignored. Your investigation is specifically on the pit fires. What exactly is pit? Yeah, so when, when we look into the literature and, and around the world, we realize that the expression of smoldering that is most concerning is not when a sofa is smoldering or when the paper storage of a factory is smoldering, but it's when actually nature, natural fuels are burning in a wildfire. And typically you can look into this and many fuels that are reactive and they're porous, for example, the trees, uh, they actually smolder. They don't burn with a flame. They rarely burn with a flame. They actually, what they do is they smolder. But if you look into the soil, there is one type of soil that is very rich in carbon. So it's actually not organic, sorry, it's not an inorganic or mineral soil, it's an organic carbonaceous soil like peat, for example, that when they burn, they burn with um, without a flame, they smolder. And there is an incredible amount of fuel. If you think about the density of carbon in, in the soil is a hundred times higher than the density of carbon in, in a tree. And these soils, one of them, the most important one is called peat, Pit soils in pitlands uh, is, is a type of soil that is formed when there is a lot of water in the soil. Most of the time, not always, there is a lot of water. And it means that the biomass, the plants, when they die, they don't degrade. They just become part of the soil by losing a little bit of its weight. And most of the carbon remains in the soil. And this is how nature has been doing carbon storage for thousands and, and millions of years. That, that, that's fascinating. This type of fuel, uh, like a porous fuel that, that promotes heterogeneous uh, combustion, uh, smoldering, uh, 
I mean, it's not only peat. I mean, in buildings, we can find some of that as well. And in build environment, I, I, I made a list. It's many kinds of wood, coal, litter on, on our uh, waste uh, plants. That That's possibly as well a source of a similar fire threat, as well as, as fibers and uh, all kinds of thermosetting polymers. So, so this, this kind of combustion is... It's actually quite <laughs> if popular, if you can say that, in in, in the world. So I, I assume that uh, even though you're focused on the on the largest and and most uh, most dangerous fires, the mega fires in in petlands, I, I think there is still quite a huge potential to jump some of the technology devised for this into build environment. No, yeah. And so smoldering fires are also a concern, as you are saying, in, in the building, in our homes and in our factories. Uh, actually, that's how I started to study smoldering. I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, it was a project funded by NASA because NASA is very concerned about fires in the spacecraft. Particularly, they go to Mars because for three years, I think it's one going and two going back. They cannot call their firefighters. They cannot evacuate. And it's very messy to extinguish in a spacecraft. So NASA relies on the single most important layer of protection, which is prevention, which is don't have a fire to begin with. And they've been really good at preventing flaming fires. But NASA was growing concerns that smoldering fires could actually be more frequent in the absence of gravity that on Earth. And on Earth, we have a lot of smoldering. And what my PhD thesis actually contributed to is to see that the lack of gravity actually makes smoldering um, more stable. Um, so NASA is more concerned about a smoldering fire inside a spacecraft than it is concerned about a flaming fire. So then when I graduated, I wanted to come down to Earth, so to speak. And I thought, well, unfortunately, NASA is not going to hire me. At that time, NASA was going down. It was not going up like now. And we don't have uh, SpaceX. And I thought, well, I want to have a job on, on the planet. And I started to look into other smoldering hazards. And that's when I discovered peat fires and also coal fires. And that's another one that is quite big. Uh, for example, abandoned coal mines that have been mined and the, the face of the walls uh, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers square are cold. Coal is a porous reactive media. And because uh, the air gallery is going deep, this means this coal is exposed to oxygen for the first time in millions of years. And it starts to burn. And when it does it, it doesn't die with a flame. It actually does smoldering. And it's really, really difficult to suppress these fires. Some of them actually have never been suppressed. They've been burning for hundreds of years. Yeah, I've written down, you mentioned in some of your talks, a 6,000-year-old fire in Australia in the Burning Mountain Reserve. That's that's actually fascinating to have fire older than uh, many of all this uh, humankind uh, written reports on the human activity. It's fascinating. That That is the longest continuously burning fire uh, it still burns today. I visited five years ago. Now it has moved five meters. So now I have to go back and move five meters from where I was five years ago. Uh, impossible to suppress, literally impossible to suppress. And geologists, uh, not, this is not actually fire engineers, geologists say that there is clear evidence of this fire burning uh, 6,000 meters behind, six kilometers behind. Which means that at least it was burning. At least it was burning six thousand years ago. Probably some some people say half a million years ago. Oh, wow. And and this is important because it happens in Australia, not far from Sydney. That means that at least the British uh, cannot be claimed to be the cause of the fire. <laughs> this this is older than the British presence in the island. 
probably the danger is in, in, in some million years it will reach Europe. So we, we better get, we better get prepared <laughs> for that coming. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I think we should get prepared for other monsters. I mean, I, I was shocked when I've learned the scale of emissions of, of these pit fires that you, that you study in, in your grant. Then I've realized, I mean, we are talking about fires that can cover square kilometers of, of area, right? They, they, they burn through a, they, it's not like a sub millimeter uh, scale of a flame, uh, that, that you normally have where the reactions occur. It's like, it can be a meter of, of the ground that's, that's going through reactions at the same time. So if you start thinking about the amount of mass involved in a singular fire at the same time, that's unprecedented. I mean, if that was a flaming combustion, you would like see it on the news the whole day because that would be the biggest fire we've seen. And yet it's so many of them happening at the same time. Can you, can you tell the listeners a bit more on, on, on this uh, aspect of these mega fires? Yeah. So uh, smoldering peat fires, uh, the ones particular that are so large that we can see, um, in the satellite. They are mega fires. And I claim, based on our research, that these are the largest fires on Earth. Not largest in the speed of the flames or the height of the flames or how scary it is to see them, but they are the largest because when, after the fire has passed, when you calculate or you measure the amount of fuel that has burned, these fires are about a thousand times more mass than flaming fires that we see in California, in, in, Port, in Portugal, or in the Mediterranean. Uh, these are absolute monsters. I mean, the, the order of magnitude higher impact of a smoldering, big smoldering fires compared to big flaming fires made the first scientists that measure believe that their measurements were wrong. Uh, this, when they publish, they finally um, make sure that, you no, know, they recheck their calculations and they said, no, no, it's not that we are wrong. It's just that it was this big. It was a very famous paper in Nature in, in the year um, 2002. Um, very, very famous paper, which actually caught my attention and got me into this field uh, where they measure the 1999 fires in Southeast Asia, most of them in, in islands uh, belonging to Indonesia, but not only Indonesia. And, and they realized that those fires alone, mostly smoldering, accounted for at least 13% equivalent to the anthropogenic emissions of the whole planet. 13%, 13%, that single fire, okay? Not taking into account any of the other fires that might be happening in Siberia, in Alaska, in North America, in any other pitland around the world. Just the fires of 1999 in Southeast Asia accounted for 13% of the anthropogenic emissions. 13% is a very, very large number. It accounts for the whole footprint of the European Union. 13%. And, and the European Union is very concerned about its own footprint in carbon emissions. Or, if you want to know the equivalent, the whole worldwide fleet of cars and trucks. I wanted to ask you if you included Britain in that, but let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> at, at the time the calculation was done, UK was part of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's also a, a footprint that would be similar to the global carbon uh, production from, from concrete. So another major source uh, of, of, of carbon. Yeah. And... Uh, that, that that's definitely that, that's definitely a huge number if we consider that anthropogenic emissions are the ones that that put the planet out of balance, right? It's it's the one that we care about, and 
uh, I find it fascinating because like from a naive point of view, I think it would be easier to put down fires in Indonesia rather than resign for, from cars by the whole of the <laughs> yes. humanity, which actually from from the scientific point of view may not be the thing. <laughs> but that, that is the engineering mind, Boja, I agree with you. It's like we all want a good thing for the planet. Maybe we should start focusing on the biggest one that we can do something about. For example, not letting Indonesia or Southeast Asia burn every three summers. Now, the, the drama about this massive footprint um, a emissions, uh, carbon emissions of smoldering fires, is that it, this, the calculation that I told you, the 13%, which, by the way, on average, every single year, taking into account all fires, is about 15 every single year. Okay. So it's not just every three years, 13%, because there are massive fires in, in the Arctic, in Siberia, etc. Mm -hmm. Is that the IPCC, which is, these are the world um, um, cleverest uh, scientists, atmospheric and climate scientists, they don't take into account these fires because they don't know how to take them into account for, for two reasons. One is none of the members of the IPCC know much about fire and definitely not smoldering fires. And the second one is that when they go to the literature, they just see not, they don't see many papers on smoldering because the scientific uh, output has been quite reduced in the study of smoldering compared to the study of flaming. It, it takes a lot, lot of time to study <laughs> smoldering combustion eh? because it's slow. Um, Anyway, um, I, when you said that, that they didn't believe the numbers when they, when they calculated, when I was um, reading some of your, your papers on emissions from, from haze fires, when I was doing my review on, on modeling uh, fires in the environment, I, I've stumbled across the, the data and I, I found it astounding in terms of what emitted in, in these in this fires. The PM2.5 emissions were like 0.044 of gram per gram, gram of uh, emission from gram of fuel. The um, carbon monoxide was like 21% of the emissions. That That's insane. Then um, all kind of uh, organic compounds like phenols, yeah. uh, benzene, toluene, furans, they, I, I've summarized them all and I've received like 0 0.06 gram per gram. So in the end, combining them all, that's like 30% of the mass burned is becoming one of the most dangerous pollutants you can have in the air after a fire. And like that means you've burned a kilogram of peat and you've received 300 grams of that thing. That That's enormous emissions. To put that into perspective, when I design a road tunnel, which is meant to be used by vehicles, well, people using vehicles, and we care about the air quality near to the place where we exhaust the air from the from the tunnel because we need to maintain ventilation so there's comfort there's visibility in the tunnel when i would receive emissions higher than i don't know 3 maybe 4 grams per second grams i would be uh, very unhappy because it would be very challenging to get rid of that in a way that does not affect the surrounding people in any way for grams and here one, one kilogram of pit that that's what two liters of it that that's a handful of that and yet you you have square kilometers of that burning together so so the combined mass of that is is insane what, what's happening with it i mean it it does not disappear no, it is. So the, the reason why they are so polluting is precisely the nature of smoldering is smoldering is a very incomplete 
combustion reaction, incomplete in the sense that it's very far from ideal. An ideal combustion is an hydrocarbon combines with oxygen and it produces mostly CO2 and water. And this is what you what we study in, in at the university. Uh, smoldering could not be farther from ideal conditions. It actually, most of the fuel still remains in the gas phase. In the sense that if you were to get these pollutants that you are talking about and you were be able to burn them, you will get energy and and, clean, and the air will be cleaner, which is, by the way, is, is a possible route that some uh, mines are trying to come up with. Um, so smoldering is very is very polluting. It actually incapacitates people and their homes very fast because it's so polluting. Um, haze episodes that happen in Southeast Asia or it happened as, as well in California um, most recently, these are horrible because... It's not that there is a plume of toxic gases and that you avoid. It's that the plume has diluted into the atmosphere, covering the whole town or the whole city or the whole region. And this is the air that you are breathing day and night inside your house or outside the house for a week. So the emergency, the health emergency uh, crisis that come out of a haze episode are humongous. We're talking about millions of excess deaths in Southeast Asia every single time a haze episode happens. Is, is very, very dramatic. And unless there are scientists measuring this, this, this unfortunately doesn't make it into the, into the top of the news. Yeah, if, you, if you put it into perspective, like uh, we are high-fiving each other that, that uh, less people die in building fires than from sleeping on the stairs or, or some other uh, ridiculous <laughs> reasons uh, people die for. Because we are quite successful as the fire safety engineering community for preventing deaths in fires. But at the same time, it, it seems if, if we are in a way responsible for not solving the issue yet... Uh, this this monster is taking like lives in millions and not taking hostages while doing that. So that that's astounding. And it's also not a regional problem, right? I, I mean, it's not uh, it's not that uh, there's a fire in 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 Indonesia or Siberia or, or or California and it just covers the the neighboring town. If you contaminate the whole volume of of air in let's say twenty thirty kilometer radius. Uh, the winds will not dilute that. The, the winds will move it further, right? It, it's not cleaning that easily as, as a plume of, of, uh, of a normal fire, yeah? It takes months to clean a haze episode. Uh, you require massive winds for days and days and days to take that cloud up into the atmosphere because one of the other dramatic consequences of a smoldering being incomplete is also incomplete in the amount of energy releases, in the amount of thermal energy releases. It means that the plume of a smoldering fire is not very mm -hmm. hot. It's actually very close to being almost cold. It means that it doesn't have buoyancy, so it doesn't go up high up like you, you see the smoldering, sorry, you see the flaming fires of California. And the plume is really hot, very buoyant. It goes literally like a jet into the atmosphere, very high up, and it mixes and passes sometimes the clouds. Smoldering doesn't do that. Smoldering, it falls back. It doesn't go higher than the height of a building. And then it goes down again into the floor, which is, which is where people are. Um, so a flaming fire pollutes very high up into the atmosphere. And a smoldering fire pollutes very, very low in, in the terrestrial environment. That's, yeah, that, that, I, I think that's um, one of the challenges. You only can stop this from happening or maybe suppress it while it's small. Because once it grows and releases that amount of, of pollutants, it's, it's, there's, there's no way you can you can manage that. Like, of course, you cannot manage the the, the plumes of of normal fires like flaming fires, but uh, 
it's again we're talking about scale 1000 times more mass involved in this in this plume no, you're absolutely right. Um, Budget, this is the engineering mind, right? Um, uh, at works, what you're saying is 100% what I agree with is these fires, when they become large, there is no point at trying to suppress them. They are beyond human capabilities to suppress. People can still try to suppress, especially because otherwise citizens are going to be very angry with the government. Uh, so they can still do kind of PR, kind of show helicopters and, and fabricates. These fires are so large in Southeast Asia. It's too late. You have to wait for the rain season. You have to reflat this, the peatlands, this land, which, for example, in the history of peat fires has only been done twice. Once in North America, they reflatted peat plains in North Carolina in the largest fire North Carolina has ever seen. And the other one is in New Zealand. There was a small uh, pitland uh, that got burned next to a town. They had to evacuate the whole town. And for three months, they reflooded the pitland by diverting uh, streams of nearby rivers into the pitland and then put it back. Um, most people cannot afford to fight a smoldering fire. So it is absolutely essential that they are detected, not early, but very early. This is what we call very early uh, detection systems or alert systems. And we don't have detection systems for a smoldering because for a very, very long time, people thought that if they detect the flaming fire, they would be fine. But what happens is that the chemical signature or the infrared signature or visual signature of a smoldering is very different to flaming. So technology and understanding of how to detect a flaming fire does not detect a smoldering fire. So we were failing at being even early in detection. We, we were allowing these fires go to a size that could not be suppressed. We were at the mercy of of the elements, so to speak, in in suffering the consequences. So, so, so you need to literally smell them <laughs> before you can find them. Yeah. Well, that that's what you just said is one of the working packages of the work that we are doing, which is we are uh, smelling them, but not with a human nose, which, by the way, is an incredible chemical device. We are measuring this with an FTIR, with a Fourier transfer infrared uh, spectroscopy. And we are analyzing the components that are in the smoke. And then we do ratio of components and we identify what we call the chemical signature, which is the composition, the key composition, or if you want the key smell of a smoldering smoke, which is very, very different to the smoke that comes when the pit smolders or when a tree burns in a flame. This olfacometric research is always fascinating. And you know what? I'm <laughs> always fascinated how how these people get experience with uh, with particular type of fire experiments, uh, suddenly achieve this olfacometric uh, ability to distinguish a chemical compound by, by smell. And uh, I, I remember this time uh, when we were burning a facade with, with a colleague from your lab, Matt, and we were, um, there was discussion if we use the retarded uh, polyethylene core or not retarded. And there was a technician saying, yeah, of course it's retarded. It smells like church. And we're like, oh, wow, that's like, that's an impressive ability to, to investigate the chemical structure of a, of a polymer inside a, a sandwich panel by, by using your nose. Maybe you should train dogs for, uh, for sniffing uh, smoldering fires. I can I can tell you two things about that. Would you? One is is us. So I've been in the lab burning smoldering for hundreds and, and thousands of hours, uh, and, and the students even more time. Right? It's a, it's experiment takes at least five hours. That will be a fast experiment. Some experiments take more than the whole day. So you can imagine the amount of smoldering smoke of all types of materials: polyurethane foam, 
wood, wood powder, dust, coal, char, peat. Uh, when I landed in Indonesia in 2018, I landed and I promised I could smell the smoldering fires. <laughs> People were looking at me saying, what are you talking about? There is no fire. It's like, I'm telling you, I can smell. They are coming from the wind. They're coming from the west. And when we were looking to the data satellite, the satellite, we could actually see smoldering fires not far from from the capital, from Jakarta. So I promised I could smell them. I was trained to smell them. That's phenomenal. And, and the other one is when, when we have visitors to the lab, it's, it's, it's a very nice experience to have someone uh, coming to your lab for the first time. Um, there are two types of visitors that we can spot their nationality right away. Mm-hmm. If they arrive and they say, it smells like my whiskey. These people are from Scotland because in Scotland, there is one way to give flavor to the whiskey, which is to smell their peat. It's actually what's called the peaty whiskey. But you have to smolder it. If you flame the peat, it doesn't smell, right? Okay. So it's like, okay, you're from Scotland, aren't you? Oh, how do you know? Well, <laughs> and the other one is if they arrive to the lab and says, oh, it smells like my home, there's an Irish. Because in Ireland, for a very long time, they were using peat as fuel to heat up their houses. So their houses were warm, but they also had the smell of, of peat fires, which is a very, it's actually, for peat, I have to say the smell is pleasant. It's not unpleasant. It's not like a polymer. It's, it's very sweet and it has a very specific scent. So, so you're Irish. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can distinguish Scottish person without exposing them to pit fire. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what this what, what what disturbs me, Guillermo, is that Matt once said that my coffee smells like 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 your laboratory, and now I'm not sure if he referred to the pleasant smell of Ireland or or, or the whiskey one from the Scotland. But, yeah, exactly. You have you need to ask for clarification there. <laughs> yeah, we, that 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 requires some some scientific research. So um, sm- you said you can smell them, um, but. Get, what are the ways you, you you can actually like find them before they grow big? Can you like use satellite to 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 take a look around? Um, okay, so that that's what we're working on is the actually one of the last pieces of work that we are doing for the ERC grants, mm-hmm. which is to create pathways to technology. ERC doesn't doesn't require that we develop technology ourselves, but that we develop the science that would enable the technology later on by mm-hmm. someone. So one of the pathways that we are developing, which is quite mature now, is the ability to detect smoldering when it's so small that we would not see it obviously by a plume or by our eyes. So there are two ways that we are doing this. One is infrared. Infrared is electromagnetic radiation that has come in because the, 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 there is a fire, there is heat. And obviously, we prefer to do this within, with um, satellites because this is how currently many wildfires are being detected. But when we look into the literature, it is very clear that the satellites cannot see smoldering. It's very controversial, but we are, I'm telling you as right mm-hmm. now, okay, and we are having in many scientific conversations because there is a group of people from the satellite community that say, of course, we can see a smoldering, but they cannot show the evidence that they do. It's almost like a belief. I believe that my satellite can see a smoldering. When we, as experts in the smoldering, we ask for the evidence, we don't see the evidence that they can see a smoldering. They believe they are seeing a smoldering or they see such big smoldering fires that are almost about to start flaming. They are so large. So our scientific standpoint right now is satellites cannot see a smoldering, but we don't know why. There are many reasons why this could happen. It could be the algorithm in the satellite. It could be the sensor. It could be that the, it is confused by thermal anomalies or something like this. So what we are doing is we are in the lab observing the infrared from a true smoldering fire. We are observing with exactly the same sensor a true flaming fire. 
and we are analyzing the spectra. The spectra is the ranges of, of waves of, of the radiation coming mm. from one or the other. And then we are comparing these with the sensors that are in the satellite. And we, this will be very uh, interesting work because at least we would be able to say why we think, scientifically speaking, that current satellites cannot see smoldering and what needs to change in a satellite for the satellite to be able to see smoldering. That's fascinating. I think they also burn at much lower surface temperature, right? What would be the surface temperature? So exactly. So because smoldering is in complete combustion and it releases less heat, it means that it's not as hot. So the temperature is significantly lower. We're talking about peak temperatures in the sun in the 600 Celsius or maybe 900 Celsius. These are much lower than mm -hmm. the peak temperatures in a flame, which are in the order of 1,200 to 1,600 Celsius. So uh, because radiation goes to the fourth power, of the temperature, it means that the radiation that comes from a flame is orders of magnitude larger mm. than the radiation that comes from a smoldering. And also, it's not just the magnitude of the radiation, it's the color of the radiation, because the higher the temperature, the shorter is the wavelength, right? So it's almost like the type of, type, the type of light that you see from a flame is very different from the type of light, although it's not light, right? It's radiation. The type of radiation that you see from a smoldering. And the other characteristic of smoldering that we are exploiting for detection is the chemical nature. As, as you already mentioned, there is ample evidence, and we have contributed to this, that the gases coming out of smoldering combustion are very different, drastically different than uh, flaming. And so we are mm -hmm. developing the chemical signature that would allow, for example, a handheld device, a simple device that you can buy online for a few hundred pounds that a firefighter and authority can have, allows you to measure the ratio of three important species, for example, CO, CO2, and methane. And the specific ratio of these three species can tell you, and this is what we are aiming, can tell you if there is a smoldering or not, it can tell you the strength of the smoldering, it can tell you it's not only this smoldering, but it's, it's, it's a smoldering that has just started a few days ago, for example, because the age of the fire has a different type of emissions. And it, maybe I can actually even tell you how far away it is um, by also combining this, for example, with the presence of oxygen and other ratios. And this is the technology that we dream of developing. We cannot develop it as we speak right now because the science is missing. But one of the, within a few months, hopefully, uh, objectives of ERC grant with Hayes that we have is to to develop a science for this. You know, that, that's actually fascinating because here the slowness of the fire is, 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 is good for you. Uh, as you mentioned, you want to detect them early, but by early, you mean like in the first week <laughs> or something. So it's, <laughs> yes. it, it does not have to be like a continuous <laughs> measurement uh, that uh, spans over the whole Siberia. It's enough if there's uh, trained personnel that can drive a, a patrol route every week and, and, and capture the uh, measurements, right? So, and that could be sufficient to at least identify if uh, the number of fires is growing, for example, and more preparedness has to be put on, in place. That, that's yeah. great. Good, good point, Woody. We say very early, but we mean days, three days, four days, maybe a week. You're absolutely right. But what is happening right now is, is that no one is doing anything for months. So, of course, when they discover the fire, it's so large that the satellite can see the plume, which is very dramatic. I mean, there is this very famous image from 1999, uh, fires in Southeast Asia, where the plume detected by NASA satellites is so large, you cannot see in that wavelength the, the islands of Indonesia. They literally okay. cover the whole region. It's incredible. NASA could not believe what they were looking at. Yeah, that's quite a large plume indeed. Like, And, yeah, you're, you're correct. I mean... 
when you have to shut down Singapore airport because of haze, it's, it's kind of too late to, <laughs> to detect uh, the, the, the haze fire yeah. a thousand kilometers away. Even a kid can detect it by that time. Yeah. You know, and I think, uh, Europeans are slightly underestimating the size of Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what, what has happened in the Arctic? Tell me. I, I mean, like 10 years ago, I would never consider Siberia being venue for, for immense fires. I, I would not consider fires in, in, in Greenland being issue, uh, or, or northern Canada behind the Arctic Circle. So, so that, that's kind of scary when you multiply that by, your emissions. I mean, the 30, 13% that you have mentioned before was from Indonesia fires, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, Southeast Asia is not the only place where there are smoldering fires. It just happens that as we speak right now, this is where the, the evidence is the strongest that these fires are humongous. They are the largest fires on earth. But if you look into the history of fire phenomena, you would see, for example, that Moscow once had a haze phenomena that lasted several weeks. Actually, not only once, it happened in the 60s, in the 70s, and in the 80s. St. Petersburg, when I was um, studying the topic, had a haze event that actually, it, it almost made them evacuate some of the suburbs of St. Petersburg. And the United States in Alaska had seen haze events. And these haze events, all of them relate to a smoldering happened nearby for weeks, and if not months. So it's, it's not just the pitlands in the in the tropical belt, which South, Southeast Asia is, is part of it, is also what we call the boreal belt, which is in particular is Canada, is Alaska, is not, not the United States as well, part of it is actually even Europe. Europe, UK, for example, has peat fires. The thing is the population of, of uh, the UK is so large and, and there's so many people and so many resources that these fires, although they can be actually quite large, they are dealt with within a week. But there are pit fires in the UK. There are pit fires in, in the Netherlands. The largest wildfire in the Netherlands last year was the Peel fire, which flamed for three days. It was extinguished. And then for the next three weeks, firefighters were keep calling, being called back every two days because the fire was coming back. Because for three weeks, it smoldered and it left this massive scar in the pitland of the Peel forest. Um, whereas the firefighters didn't know where the fire was coming from. They had, they had dealt with it. Um, so this, this smoldering behavior, which is quite well known in the literature is, is, is present, is moving north. The activity of a smoldering is starting to appear in places where it was rare to the point, for example, in the last five years, we have a significant amount of Arctic fires. These are fires that are burning inside the Arctic Circle, which is meant to be very cold most of the year. And what we are seeing is that the summer season, when the soil and the vegetation is not frozen and the water is in liquid state, they actually start to burn. And these fires are very strange, actually. Their behavior is very strange. It doesn't behave at all like the fires in, in the Mediterranean. They do have flames. They, they are flaming fires, but they also leave behind a lot of a smoldering. Um, and because there is no one there, no one detects them, even if they detect it, there is no one who cares about the fire presence. And actually, even sending firefighters is actually really difficult because you don't have transport and you don't have water. Um, so these are, but we can now observe them with the satellite. So for the last few years, we have this incredible data set of Arctic fires starting, developing, and naturally ending in the Arctic. 
and the number of them is unprecedented. It is an exponential increase of the number of Arctic fires. And when you look into the reasons why we could have an increase or a decrease of wildfires, we typically explain this based on three changes. Obviously, if you have a, a change in the fire behavior, mm -hmm. it's because there has been a change of something. And the three changes that we consider is, well, there is a change in population. It's either people are moving into the rural areas and are causing fires, or people are leaving the rural areas and are leaving the forest unattended and actually starts to, to become more flammable. The other one is it could be a land use change. In the sense, people are abandoning farmlands or they are starting to de 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 forest, the forest, like it happens in, um, in the Amazon. Mm. And the third one is the climate is changing. The climate is changing. It's actually bringing drought, it's bringing higher temperatures or the opposite. It's making things wet or the opposite. The only way we can explain these unprecedented and long-term changes in the Arctic wildfire behavior is by the third one. Is the only change that can explain what is happening. It's not because people are coming in or out of the Arctic. It's not because people are changing the use of the forest in the Arctic. It's because, it's the only way we can explain it, is because the climate is changing. It's actually bringing higher temperatures to the, to the forest, to the, to the shrubs and the grasslands and the peatlands of the Arctic and it's making them more flammable. So, so that's like a very disturbing feedback loop being uh, born. As the climate warms, uh, more fires occur in, in the petlands, and then that leads to these humongous emissions of, of greenhouse gases. Because you mentioned there's, there's methane, there's, there's carbon monoxide. I mean, uh, there's obviously a lot of CO2 as well happening. This much larger number of fires in the Arctic are releasing carbon that was not meant to be released by nature or otherwise, which means that it's creating more emissions in the atmosphere, of carbon, which means that it's accelerating climate change, and climate change is accelerating the number of fires in some regions of the world, among them the Arctic. So this is what we call a positive feedback mechanism between smoldering and wildfires and the climate. And again, it's a, it's a feedback mechanism that is not accounted for in any atmospheric climate model, is not accounted for by the IPCC, mostly because they don't even know how to bring it into their models because there are no experts in the topic in their uh, committees, and because when they go into the literature, they don't see much uh, knowledge base. Do you know of any evidence of these fires existing pre-satellite uh, era? Like, do these uh, pit fire signatures can be found in, like, ice cores uh, from, from Arctic or anywhere, or, or it's something really new? Actually, that's a really good question. There is evidence that pit fires have been happening for a long time, even before people uh, recollect this. You can actually look into newspapers. Um, when there is a haze event, the local newspaper reports it as this very strange cloud of smoke that no one knows where it comes from because you don't see the origin and that it stays with them for a very long time and lasts for asthma and the kids and the elderly are, 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 are poorly. Uh, the, but the source of evidence that we have found is not ice core, but peat cores. So you can drill peat. Peat is a, is a record of atmospheric conditions over thousands of years. And you look, you look into the same, the layers of the peat and you analyze it the same way that scientists analyze ice core. So we did this. We partnered with, um, soil scientists from Italy and, and we did experiments in the lab. And then we send our 
pit cores to them, and they analyzed the layers of the pit core, and they were fascinated to discover that a smoldering fire was leaving a signature, chemical signature, that previously they thought it was a sandstorm. Okay. So it was a signature that they had seen in the past. They could not understand what was going on with this signature, and they thought, well, this is very strange. It must be that there was a sandstorm, and I cannot explain the accumulation of mineral content in the layer of of peat, why is all the carbon disappearing? And the reason was that actually it was burning in a fire. That, that's fascinating because it, the, all it's left is ash, right? When everything else is, is released. Particularly the most powerful smoldering fires, they leave just the ash and all the carbon goes into the atmosphere as complex molecule, not as CO2, as, as very that's complex molecules, as you were saying. When, um, when you mentioned that IPC is not uh, accounting for these emissions, uh, I actually think that that, that may not be a case. I think it may be accounted, but n- not in the um, anthropogenic emissions, but in the background. And if that would be the case, if it was a part of the background and we could actually remove a significant part of the background, that's, that's actually a beautiful thing because it uh, improves our chances uh, against not destroying the planet for our children. Indeed, no, budget, budget is important because what you just said, which I agree with, is again the engineering mind. This is how an engineer thinks, right? We think of how to solve a problem. Um, whereas if very often when you look into the science, the science limits itself of saying, I've observed something, there is a problem, and now everybody has to change their behavior. Whereas an engineer, which is absolutely no need of, of engineers to be intervening everywhere, we identify a problem and then we always identify an intervention, right? Uh, well, there is an excess of carbon in the atmosphere. Then let's capture extra carbon for the atmosphere. Let's let's do what the business of nature has been for millennia, but mm-hmm. faster. That's. Uh, I, I mean, uh, it's 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 fascinating that you have taken a fire engineering project from a spacecraft, put it on Earth, realized it's actually devastating, and and try to find a way to 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 get to minimize it. That that truly is an ERC level of an idea. I wouldn't think smoldering fires are an ERC idea, but now now I clearly see that it's it's uh, that's that's impressive, man. That that's really impressive. Um, I wanted to ask you about another thing. Uh, you said you're creating pathways for technology. I know you have done some amazing uh, with your students. You have done some amazing computer modeling, like implementing uh, cellular automata to model that. Are there any lessons uh, for the fire safety engineering community to learn from this? Because it's I mean, that's a part of modeling that I would never touch with my background because it's so complex. So the, the, it's, it's quite an interesting question. Thank you, Budget. So yes, we've, we've used this, this new computational approach to simulate how um, a fire develops, which is, is based on cellular automata. Um, this is a, an approach that is unusual for an engineer. This was my, maybe more for a computer scientist or for a physicist. But for an engineer, we believe in the laws of nature. In particular, we believe in the laws of thermodynamics. And we conserve energy and we conserve um, mass. But cellular automata is an approach that is literally fascinating. It uses very simple rules, which means computational is very inexpensive. It runs extremely fast. But the combination of these simple rules, which just transfer information, that's what they do. They can simulate very complex behavior, very complex behavior. So what we are doing is realizing that we our models that conserve mass, energy, and momentum 
cannot be applied to understand the behavior of a smoldering fire that is burning over thousands of square kilometers. No matter that I would love to have to do this, and no matter that maybe some crazy, maybe Bill Gates will give me access to his thousands of high-performance computing, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a brute force that is just not worth it. We are not ready to do this, and we don't want to do this. So we're changing approach. Instead of going from conservation laws, we are doing to transfer of information, cellular mm-hmm. automata. And I, I, we can claim that we're working on this for three years, four years now. We can claim success. We, we can claim that we have developed extremely interesting, very fast models uh, of the smoldering that is allowing us to understand smoldering at a scale that we had never studied before. It's fascinating, and I, I've I've read the papers by by Nieves, and I was I was truly amazed by how how can you take a, such a simple idea and develop it into such a powerful tool. But yeah, that that's what um, that's what engineers do. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, one more thing. How does one study a mega fire from Kensington, London? Yeah, it's true. Uh, well, I, I managed to convince the panel ERC uh, because our approach uh, is, is multi-scale in the sense that we, we study the micro scale, which is the chemistry, and then we study the meso scale, which is how um, a bench stop experiment of pit fires will go, and then and then we study the 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 macro scale, which is the true scale where accidents and fires happen in in Southeast Asia, and the combination of these three scales, uh, not just one, but the three of them, through high fidelity experiments and advanced modeling, and the combination of experiments and modeling, is what we've been working on for the last many years uh, to to allow us to understand what a smoldering is, how it ignites, how it spreads, what it emits, how it suppresses, the emissions in the infrared, the emissions in the chemistry, and and develop the pathways of how to to develop detection, how to be able to detect them and monitor them in the satellite, how to account for the carbon emissions globally, how to train firefighters into how to deploy their resources, how to suppress them, etc. All these are technologies that we are developing by combining the scales and the approaches. And and this, uh, I mean, it's not only that they, we convinced the panel, which was a feast it, of its own, is that is we, we've, we've done it. In, you know, it's, it's, we, I'm happy to say that this is not the work ahead, it's actually the work that we've done already. I mean, it's fascinating because so many people get turned down from pursuing their scientific dreams and most ambitious goals in research because they believe they do not have facilities suited for that. And and, and basically, you have attempted and you have done development in, in satellite imaging technology from your basement in Kensington. So that... that in a pandemic, in a pandemic, in a pandemic. <laughs> surrounding that, that's that's astounding how how much uh, a mind can truly achieve when uh, when you're focused and when you know what you look for, and and having this decoupled into into these scales as you mentioned, that that's also a, a beautiful idea because even even if you were not able to to go to Indonesia and and do it in macro scale. The fact that you have uh, moved the science forward in, in mesoscale and, and, and small scale, it, it already is promising that someone could take it forward. So, so yeah, I, I think the lesson here is that never think you're limited by, uh, by your facility. It's all 
all comes down to to your head and the, the cleverest way you can you can use it uh, to build science. For me, there are three lessons in in what you're describing, Boje. The, the first one, absolutely essential, is the human component. Is I have this beautiful team. I am biased because it's my team, but they are incredible. They are incredibly smart. They are incredibly hardworking, and it's literally a joy to to work with them. And and the fact that they they have done so well, it, it is a testament to to the challenges that we've been able to accomplish by working together. The second one, so people is very important in success of in, of science. And for example, your team, Boji, and you yourself are also incredible people to work with. The second one is. Um, I don't believe in experiments that are expensive. This is just uh, not, not particular. I don't know why. Since uh, maybe because I come from a Spain where scientific facilities are not overwhelming in in in, in size. So I, I prefer to try Come to do on, my you, you, have, you have the biggest. <laughs> Spain has the biggest atrium. They they have a seven hundred meter long tunnel in Gijón to to burn stuff in it. So it's fascinating. It's true. But it's sorry, true. go on. No, but it, it, it's true. It's true that it, it, some of the cases that you're mentioning are, are large. No, but what I mean is, as a scientific uh, signature, I don't believe in experiments that are expensive. Not not that I don't do them, because I might actually I've been involved in expensive experiments. But it's it's not what I prefer to be. So I always prefer to have experiments that are simple mm. in nature that they can break. That is, there is no drama if a if a red camera burns. Uh, that is no drama if if I miss the opportunity to observe a fire. And this gives us tremendous flexibility and it makes us not being afraid of failing in the first experiments or failing in the first models because the consequences are not dramatic. So then it takes a stress away from the team and allows the team to enjoy what they're doing. And when you enjoy what you're doing and you have a good team, then beautiful things can happen. And the last thing is something very important that is related to ERC. ERC, as, as you would see, it doesn't fund many things. And it actually has the point of funding things that are meant to be impossible, hmm. but that if they happen to be possible, they would be a breakthrough, right? This is a signature of ERC. So if you come up with a, an idea that is obviously going to work, then ERC will say, that's fantastic, congratulations, <laughs> but it's so clear that it's going to work that someone else will fund it, yeah. right? Whereas if you go to ERC with a crazy idea, to the point that actually your colleagues read it, some, some of my colleagues were reading my proposals, they were saying, Guillermo, this will never work. I said, okay, that's it. I got it. That's an ERC topic. There is very smart people who think this will never work. It's their opinion against my intent. And this is what ERC wants to try. Crazy things that if they were to work, they would be a breakthrough. Uh, Niels Bohr once said about uh, an idea in, in, in atomic physics of, of Wolfgang Pauli. Uh, is it crazy enough? Because they, they they literally believe that I mean if if you're in quantum physics and the idea it does not sound absolutely crazy it means it's just wrong it it must it it must be crazy <laughs> otherwise it will not work and you know what uh, while preparing this this interview I, I had this word written down in my in my notebook in bold and the word says observe and that's uh, that's one thing that I've I've learned from you and your team and doing experiments with you. Uh, the power of observation, the the learning through uh, through experiencing things. I, I think many many people miss this aspect of of science. Maybe it's because the funds are limited. Maybe because you're pushed to publish things, and you know, running an experiment just to witness it and learn and be able to improve the experiment, so one day you can truly measure 
I, I think this aspect of, of the, the fire science is often missing. And uh, I, I wish more of us would have the uh, courage to just uh, take, take it slowly and learn by observing, right? Um, I 100% I agree with you, Boji. I, I think that observing, which is the number one tool of science, right? When science was invented by humans uh, many, 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 many millions of years ago, uh, it was observing. It was just literally being able to, to re realize that you have seen something that is worth communicating to someone else, even maybe yourself in your diary. And, and very often what we see is that um, someone, a young researcher arrives, wants to be a scientist, is very impressed by these incredible experiments that are happening here and there and these very compu com complex set of measurements and predictions. And they themselves want to straight go into that. Uh, whereas uh, the value of first observing and reporting your observations, as you, as you describe, is, is the first step in science. It, it has to be done. And in fire science, because in many ways we are an infant discipline in the sense that we haven't done uh, our basic work for way too long. I mean, it's not our fault particularly. Maybe it's the fault of our founding parents. And there is a lot of things that need to be observed first before we can actually do complex measurements and, and complex modeling. Fantastic. If I can just take the last five minutes of your time and ask you one one final thing, w one thing that that stands out in in your group is is the amazing people that you, that you take with you uh, on on this on this amazing journey into fire science, and you seem to have a great hand on turning uh, promising uh, students into world class fire scientists. And uh, I know I know there will be many many students, PhD students, postdocs listening to this. What advice uh, such a good uh, supervisor like you can give to young people pursuing a career in into in, in fire science? Wow, that that great question as well, Bojo. There are so many. Um, I would say the most important one. It happened to me, and I can see that happening to many of my students. Is very often uh, fire scientists didn't know that fire science existed until literally days before making that an application for a PhD, literally. Uh, it's, it's like the field of fire science has decided to remain secret uh, to a very small set of, of people in the planet and, and making a point out of this. Whereas it's actually the opposite. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. And, and I'm, I'm biased. I'm a fire scientist. But it, it, I, I use evidence. People are fascinated by flames. People are very worried about the safety of the environment and their buildings. Smoke plumes, chemical reactions, um, uh, all the topics of far science is absolutely fascinating. So we should not keep this hidden uh, for a subset of people. We should actually grow the awareness that it deserves. And we will get much larger audiences, which will mean that at some point, authorities would be having a knowledge of far science. And when you have a committee of people setting the budget, uh, in, in big organizations, and these people have knowledge of far science, then guess what happens? That the budget dedicated to far science grows. That's definitely a, a thing, and sharing this uh, with uh, with your colleagues and, and families and participating in science fairs, reaching out of this uh, community we, we have, is definitely appreciated. And that's one of the things that I want to achieve with with this project as well. So I take your advice uh, as well. Well, Guillermo, I'm, I'm so happy to, to, to have you here and uh, thankful for 
participating. I want to mention that this it's difficult to say that uh, having a grant is uh, is an achievement because it shouldn't be in our field is toxic because of that. We find getting money for research uh, as an achievement, but uh, getting an ERC grant is, is truly an achievement in a career. And uh, yesterday we've celebrated 10,000 ERC grants being given in Europe. And I think yours is the only one touching the fire science. Uh, you have a very small club of ERC beneficiaries, higher science. Uh. And, and unfortunately, what is true of these 10,000 great scientists, very few, unfortunately, study fire. I'm not the only one, but it's true that I think it's a handful. And not just fire, I'm actually even, even including combustion science, which is the fundamental model of fire science. Um, I would say, obviously, I'm really happy and delighted by ERC. It has changed my career, not because of the amount of money, which is quite nice. It's because of the quality of the money. It allows you to do, to do so many things. It's incredible. I've never had a grant that is this flexible and this convenient and this well-supported. Um, but it, it came, you can imagine that it's not that I submitted in one day and then I got of it. It, <laughs> it. It took four years of a lot of hard work and a lot of revisions and a lot of rejections. But now I can look back into those four years and say that every single effort was worth it. I consider ERC, uh, the, the review process that they have is extremely mature and is very consistent in the sense that every single time I submitted my proposal, the comments from the multiple reviewers, and I think at the end there was like almost 30 reviewers over the years that had looked into my proposal, they were all consistent, Boje. This is incredible. Wow. How can you have 30 beautiful panel minds reading a proposal that is growing and, and modifying time, and all of them independently being consistent in which should be the direction of the proposal to make it stronger. I've never seen that before in, in all the hundreds of proposals that I've sent around. No, not even in, in, in reviews for papers. I mean... Well, especially not in reviews papers. <laughs> There's always this reviewer too that's, that's, uh, that's, that's problematic. <laughs> okay, so yeah, that would be a summary. I never saw reviewer two in ERC, not even close. Wow. That's, I, I would love to encourage all the all, all the bright minds of fire science to try and more of funding like this we get for the community and for people the the bigger the achievements will be and the, the better the, the the safer the fire safer the world will be. Um, so Guillermo, thank you so much for uh, your time. I wish you all the best in in your final year of this of this grant and. The, <laughs> I mean, I hope the coming out of pandemic will, will help you achieve the dreams. <laughs> Are you going to Indonesia again? Oh, I, I wish. I wish. Definitely. Indonesia. Traveling to Indonesia is one of the top trips, scientist trips, scientific trips so when the pandemic is over. Definitely. <laughs> that's, so, that's so cool. But Bodje, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you in your podcast. I think you you are amazing at creating this and putting your time and your all your enthusiasm is contagious. So the fact that you believe in this makes Thanks, a lot man. of people believe in far science. So thank you for that. And you have all our support. Let's build it together and it's it's going to be great. Um, thanks a lot and, and see you around. Thank you, everybody. Thank Cheers, you so much. Man. Wow, this one hour interview has passed so quickly. I didn't even have a chance to ask Guillermo about his research and suppressing the pit fires. Well, I guess that's a material for another episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed this a lot. Uh, Guillermo's research is always fascinating and for me personally the research on pit fires on pit megafires is, is truly remarkable and before meeting Hazelab and, and Guillermo 
I actually never realized such a threat exists and it can be so dangerous to such an immense number of people. Now, now I am aware, now I see uh, this type of fires happening all over the planet and potentially they, they will also happen in Poland because we also had peatlands. So yeah, definitely something uh, to know about and be aware of. If you want to learn more about Guillermo's research and his fascinating group, Imperial Hazelab, you should jump into their website, imperial.ac.uk slash Hazelab, H-A-Z-E-L-A-B. And you definitely want to follow him on Twitter at Guillermo Rain. And the Imperial Hazelab is at Imperial Hazelab. In the show notes, I'm going to drop links to the papers mentioned in this episode and i'll also drop the link to the website of hazelab so you get an easier access to that and i urge you to take a look on it i also welcome you to to, to sign to the newsletter of the fire science show which you can find at the top of the show description and uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode there's one more from the first three to listen to. Uh, talk with Dr. Gabriele Vigne, which is as interesting as this one. And then uh, expect a new episode every Wednesday. So thank you for being here. I appreciate you and uh, all the kind words that, that came to me before the launching this podcast. I hope I didn't fail your expectations and you truly enjoyed this episode and you will enjoy further even more so thank you very much for being here and see you around this was the fire science show thank you for listening and see you soon